All right, well, yeah, tonight, tonight is, Amy, or today is Amy's birthday. She is how old? 17. Wow. Today is also Halloween, and there will be a lot of trick-or-treating and stuff going on all around the world. Do what? Oh, yeah, thank you. Is this yours? All right. Um, there will be a lot of trick-or-treating, a lot of stuff going on. And, and Halloween is one of those things that... that um, there's a lot of controversy in the church. Do we celebrate it? Do we not? I remember in my lifetime, we celebrated it, then we didn't, then we did, then we didn't, uh, and all of that before I graduated from high school. And then we moved to Chile, Chile actually, in, in Chile it was easy because back then, uh, Chile especially being a Catholic country, when we moved down there, they didn't even know what Halloween was. But I have great news, as Cindy Johnston came back from Chile, uh, two weeks ago, um, they now celebrate it. So commercialism has reached South America, which is a great thing uh, in the sense that, uh, that the economy in a country like that is growing to the extent where commercialism plays a role. It's a bad thing in the sense that, yeah, they're starting to struggle with all sorts of different things like materialism and all that kind of stuff that accompanies capitalism, that kind of stuff. So anyways... That's just the, the life of, uh, I guess, the way life goes. But anyways, Halloween. It's one of those things. Do we celebrate it? Do we not? Russ Wise, a missionary that we support, he actually attends church here. He, uh, he has a website where he addresses cults and things of the sort. He has a lot of information on Halloween. And uh, if you really want to know uh, some of the backgrounds, the roots, uh, where Halloween came from, that kind of thing, you can go to his website. Uh, you can look at our church website to find his website. I don't even know it off the top of my head. Uh, but you can go to our mission, the mission section of our website and find him and his website and stuff and go research it. And there's a lot of, a lot of real interesting information in there. Um, the thing about it is that most of the holidays that we do celebrate, most of them do have secular, secular beginnings. Uh, most of the things that we do to celebrate holidays have secular beginnings. Christmas trees. Christmas trees were, were something that the Celtic, uh, Celtic Druids used in their worship and their celebration of Mother Earth and things of the sort. And it was, uh, it was um, hold on, it's coming to me. Martin Luther, thank you. Uh, it was Martin Luther in Germany that was walking home one night when they were the Druids were celebrating their celebration of Mother Earth or whatever, and he saw that they would put candles in trees, and he thought it was pretty. And so he decided to take one and put it in his house and decorate it and celebrate it as part of a Christmas time where we remember the child's birth, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so Christmas trees and greenery really have beginnings in secularism. And we've adopted them as the church. We've adopted them. And Halloween, uh, often we, in many churches, try to do the same thing. Instead of celebrating Halloween, we're going to have, I remember growing up, one of the times where we were kind of celebrating it, kind of not. The church had one of these things, a big potluck that night or whatever, where we all had to come dressed as Bible characters. Wow. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, we all had to come dressed as Bible characters, but then they put the ki this kids through this thing. We couldn't have a haunted house, so instead, 
because we were being spiritual or whatever. Instead, what they did is they put us in the fellowship hall. They turned out all the lights, and they told this story. And as they were telling the story, they would pass around bowls of stuff, and you couldn't see anything. And as you, they passed the bowl to you, you had to put your hand in the bowl and fill it. So they would tell the story, and it had to do something with the story. So, like, they were talking about this something that ate something or whatever and found this bowl full of, or, you know, there was eyeballs all over the place and you stuck your hand in there and it was like frozen grapes or something, you know, and so it felt like eyeballs. You couldn't see what it was. So we couldn't dress up in anything scary. We had to dress up as Bible characters, but they told us a scary story and passed around all this stuff to creep us out, right? Um, so I'm not here to argue for or against Halloween. I'm not. In fact, I have explicit orders to be done by six o'clock so that I can take my boys trick-or-treating tonight uh, so that then after they go to bed, I can raid their candy, you know? Um, we as a youth group, we have a uh, member of this church whose dentist trades, I don't know, stickers or something for candy. And so kids can bring the candy or parents can bring the, their kids candy that they collected from trick-or-treating to the dentist office and he exchanges something for it. So then at the end, he donates all that candy to the church. So for the past three years, there's a box, a case of candy that comes in for the different events that we do. And we use some of it to to stuff stockings at the end of the year and that sort of stuff. And then the rest of it sits locked away in the closet for the adult sponsors who have keys and knows where it is. Thus, the girth, right? Um, so, so, you know, it would be wrong. It would just be wrong of me to sit up here tonight and preach against Halloween. Um, because the reality of it is, is that, that I'm going to take my kids trick-or-treating. And, and re- I, I don't want to get into that tonight. Do we celebrate it? Do we not? Um, I, I, think if, I, I think if we're going to really get into that, then we need to really get into everything else that we do, like Valentine's Day and Christmas and Easter. And our church has an Easter bunny up here that sings to the kids um, every year. And my boys, you know, for the longest time, until uh, they were about three, thought that that was the real Easter bunny. They thought that the Easter bunny was chocolate, and that's what they said. It's the chocolate Easter bunny, right? Because it was Aaron's dad, you know? And, and they're not being... <laughs> in fact, they're two or three. In fact, in fact, it was, that is a cherished memory for my kids. Their whole life, that's what they remember of the Easter bunny, except it kind of threw them when he had been pink for two or three years, and then last year he came and he was white because he ch- bought a new bunny suit, you know? And so, no, if we're going to start knocking on holidays, we need to really, we need to pull back the blinders and look at everything we do, okay? Um, let's look at what we do in Sunday morning worship. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we adopt from the world that we, we, uh, we incorporate into our celebrations or whatever. Halloween... Let's just put it this way. We're not going to make an alternative for it. But what I do want to do tonight, rather than speak against it or for it, is what I want to do is I just want to speak a little bit about um, other things that will be going on tonight. Okay. Um, When I was a sophomore in high school and I had uh, gotten saved, I was 15, Um, I say I'd gotten saved because I I walked the aisle when I was seven and I got baptized when I was seven. Um, And then I got baptized again when I was 13 because I I wanted to go to heaven when I died. I wanted to please the Lord. Uh, But at the age of 15 is when I understood lordship and and I decided that I was going to do what God wanted me to do. And it was like, God, here it is, have my all type thing. 
Uh, so I knew about Christ before that. I lived a, lived a very religious lifestyle in many regards before that. But it wasn't until I was 15 that I decided, hey, this isn't my life anymore. This is God's do what he wants with it. And it was at the time when we lived on the Strait of Magellan down in a city called Punta Arenas. Um, and you've heard some stories about it. That's also where that English teacher had come back from England in an exchange teacher program. And he had gotten saved in a church and he had discovered what youth ministry was because that didn't exist in Chile. And he started doing a Bible study with students that he taught in this secular school at his house. Now, in this country, you know, he'd probably get arrested for inviting students to come to his house. Um, and it was as foreign there as it would be for him to, like, start inviting students, you know, a teacher from Creekview start inviting students to come do orgies at his house. You know, it would be shocking to our parents and the people. And they'd just be like, what? This no, this, there's something, something not right with this teacher. Well, in a country where there is no such thing as youth ministry, for a teacher to invite students to come to his house to read the Bible, to sing songs, uh, and, and he would love on kids. Um, I guess his dad, he came from a broken home or something, but they would come in and he, man, he would just hug us, you know, and just kiss us on the cheek and just be like, I love you, you know, and it was just so foreign. And, uh, and they, so, so for kids, it was just weird. And for parents, it was even more weird than that. And needless to say, um, it didn't take very long uh, for one, kids to start getting saved. As he became, can you take some of those mids out? It's, uh, there we go. No, there's the low mids, lows, whatever. A uh, little feedback. Anyways, he would, he would, that's going to bother me. <laughs> it's not his fault. It's a new microphone thing that we're trying out. Uh, he would, he would invite us over and he'd love on us. And kids loved that. Kids had never experienced that. And so we started getting saved. And as he ex expressed and, and de demonstrated true, genuine discipleship to us, then we genuinely started getting saved. And we started growing. In the first year, we grew from zero to 30 students. Um, I was the only one out of the 30 whose parents knew the Lord. The rest, their parents were lost. Their parents started complaining, started offering to buy alcohol and host parties at their house if their kids would just do normal things for teenagers to do, right? Uh, so in the midst of that, uh, we started experiencing spiritual warfare, uh, not just, you know, little things like uh, like the heat wouldn't work or whatever. No, we were experiencing spiritual warfare, like things like teachers started giving uh, failing kids that were going to the group, the cult of Garfield, they called it. Uh, they'd start giving them Fs. And when they'd go to ask about the grades, the teachers would say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. And in that country, there was nothing you could do about it. And so we would start having these prayer meetings. And, and it tickles me, um, which, by the way, if any of you didn't happen to go, last, last night, Saturday night, they had an international gathering, uh, that prayer meeting again. And I encourage you all to go um, because it, it reminds me of what prayer meetings were like when I was growing up in South America. Because when we have prayer meetings here, they're nice, sterile, within an hour, contained. And when you go... In prayer meetings, especially in third world countries or especially in persecuted countries, it's not like little formal prayer meetings. It's like people bearing their souls to God and pleading with God and, and, and manifesting. And God just does his stuff, and it's an amazing thing, right? KJ went last night, I know. Yeah, I played. Was, I was there. We went through an hour and 45 minutes, and I apologize for going over. 
Right. Did y'all hear that? KJ went and played drums from last night. They went an hour and 45 minutes, and then they apologized because they were ending early. But the reality of it is when you go to a meeting like that and their prayer is so intense that that hour and 45 minutes goes by like that. And you do leave. You leave wanting more. You leave thinking, man, wait, I'm not, I'm not done. You know? Well, we started having prayer meetings like that because a kid would come and say, hey, my teacher is failing me. And I asked them why, and they said, because you're going to that cult. You quit going to that cult, and I'll turn your grades around in public school. And so what would we do? Well, as kids, we were ignorant. We didn't know any better. I mean, I did a little bit being raised in church, but none of them did. Their parents weren't about to help them because their parents agreed with the teacher. So here, Cesar is his name, the leader. He'd say, well, let's pray. You know, this is what they did in Acts. This is what we'll do. So we would get down, and we'd pray for four or five hours on a Friday night. And I mean begging, interceding for our friend. And then the next day they'd go back and they'd be like, well, the teacher doesn't like it, but I went back and talked to him and they decided that that wasn't right, so they're going to give me the A that I deserve, right? That type of thing. I mean, we're experiencing that kind of stuff. Well, pretty soon that got to where where we were having victories in those situations too. Um, Not only were we having victories in those situations, but I'll never forget my best friend. His name is John. One of the reasons he was my best friend is because he was an introvert like me. We played all the sports together and all that kind of stuff. He was my classmate. Uh, But we would go every Friday night before the youth group, we would go and just watch a movie. If we didn't have a basketball game when it wasn't basketball season, we'd just go watch a movie. We could sit through a whole movie without having to say a word to each other. And that was just soothing for both of us as introverts. And and still to this day, I would rather go to a movie alone than go with somebody and have to hear them talk during the movie. Well, he and I were good buds because we could go and just watch the movie. We didn't have to talk during the movie, you know. Anyways, John lived just about four blocks from me. Well, he started having a problem because he, he was uh, real renowned. His family was renowned for track. His mom had won state stuff when she was in high school. She still ran as an adult, still competed. And, uh, and all of his siblings ran. And John was a state contender for cross country, for distance running. Uh, and down on the Strait of Magellan, distance running is very hard. It's cold. It's harsh. You know, you literally freeze your lungs during the winter just by breathing in too bad if you're not careful. So it's a lot more than just like distance running here. You know, you have to really train. Wearing t-shirts and shorts and distance running down there, you're liable to get hypothermia or whatever. Uh, so John was really good at it. Well, one, one day, for some reason, uh, they had a meet on Sunday or whatever, and he just didn't want to go because there was something going on at church. He was going to go to church. So his parents got pissed. So they asked to speak with the Cesar guy because they were done. Um, and so Cesar met with them. And about, you know, so we had a prayer meeting. So they meet with him at his house, at this other house. The 40, 50 of us that are now in the group, we're praying, right? We're going to pray until they get out of the meeting. And so we're praying. And uh, next thing I know, the parents are coming in and they've gotten saved. Now, this is miraculous for us because this means that out of the 50, 60 kids in the youth group now, outside of my parents being saved, he was the only one whose parents were saved outside of that. And they had gotten saved because of the life he was living. And then they went and talked to his leader, and his leader led them to the Lord. And suddenly just went, click, oh. You know, because they were mad because John had, didn't want to go to his track meet, but he had submitted himself to his parents' authority. And that's one thing that Cesar really pushed was that we would win over the parents by submitting to their authority. And so he had submitted, but he had made, let them know that he did not want to go. And so they were wrestling with this because they, were, they didn't want to just force him because he had been, for the past year, he had been a perfect child. And they didn't want to mess up 
the fact that he was perfect. You know, everything they asked him to do, he didn't ever ask. He didn't complain. He just did it. If they said, come home at 12, he was home at 11, that kind of thing. So they didn't want to mess up what was going on. But at the same time, they thought it was kind of weird. And then they didn't want to mess up and miss track or whatever. So they go and talk to Cesar. And Cesar leads them to the Lord. Well, they get saved. Well, now we're entering into spiritual battle that has just gone up a notch, you know, because now we're not just dealing with teachers and classmates and stuff. Now we're dealing with the fact that, that parents are getting saved. And the enemy gets real upset. And I'll never forget, it was right about that time um, where for the first time in something like 20 years, we had a suicide in Punta Arenas, a teenage suicide. Not only that, but the teenage su- teenager had left a note, and on his note there were some, some interesting diagrams and code and stuff like that. And the police could not figure it out. Well, a week later, we have another teenage suicide. Completely different school. They didn't know each other. They also left a note, and there were some identical symbols and code. There was text and code that they couldn't decipher. So the cops start freaking out because they haven't had suicide in like 20 years, much less teenage suicide. Now they've had two, and they've identified that even though the two students never really in any way, form, or fashion, they could not connect them as knowing each other, had identical stuff in these suicide notes. So what the police did in Punta Arenas was they called the capital and asked for whatever the police up there, you know, and they didn't have a clue. They sent them faxes of the notes. They didn't have a clue, whatever. So anyways, they tracked down this guy. His name is Lindyman, who was a pastor in Santiago, who was a consultant with the FBI on the occult before he became a missionary in Chile. And how they came across him, I don't know, but they found him. They shipped him down to the Strait of Magellan, and he uh, went through, found the notes. He knew how to decipher the code. It was the occult, uh, worship code, and he, he began to teach him. And so what he did is he stayed down there for six months. And he taught the entire police force on how to deal with the cult. Well, as he starts teaching the police force and they start going about their business, they start noticing that all over the city there are hidden occult worship places. They start seeing the signs. They start recognizing the little symbols that, that you and I might see as graffiti that you might and I might not even notice. They're seeing them all over the city. Come to find out that all over the city of Punta Arenas there was this huge occultic church that had risen. There was an old mall in the center of town that had been condemned and they had gutted it out and they were going to demolish it and build it into something else. And uh, the occult had been functioning out of there for over a year. They had found a secret way in and when the cops finally followed the signals and trails and went in there, there were remains of animal sacrifices, there were symbols, there were altars, all the whole nine yards. It was crazy, ridiculously crazy. It was also at that time that we realized that there were witches that were attending our youth group that while we were worshiping God were sitting in the back casting, trying to cast spells against us, things of the sort. We know all this because in the midst of all this, even though they kept it real hush-hush, as they're discovering all this stuff, they discover that in their worship they were trying to uh, put asunder this youth group. They found Cesar's name. Uh, They found his address. They found many of our names listed on lists, uh, prayer lists in the occult and whatnot. 
And, uh, and so they came, the cops came and got us involved too because they're like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> you know? um, crazy stuff. Stuff that you and I like to look at in movies and not think about that are real. But the reality of it is, is that they are very much real. And in this country, we really hide them a lot, but they're very much real in this country. For you and I, Halloween tonight will be completely innocent for most of us. For me, it'll be taking my kids trick-or-treating, and I'll enjoy it thoroughly. We carved jack-lanterns this weekend, and we did the whole nine yards. But for other people in this city and in your schools, tonight is going to be a night of worship. Tonight is the most spiritually active night for the occult. Meaning, for those who practice or meddle with the occult, tonight above all nights, there will be more manifestations of the demonic and their spells are more potent and that kind of thing. And the people who practice occult, tonight is their night. It's the night of all nights. It's the night where they do what they do and they get results like no other night. So I'll say all that just to say, as you celebrate your Halloween, um, it doesn't mean necessarily what you're doing is evil. But it does mean that there are people around you that are doing other things on this night. And as we celebrate that, I'm not suggesting either that you don't go get scary costumes or do the fun you intend to do. But I do say this, as you wear those costumes, as you do those things, be aware that there's a spiritual battle raging on nights like tonight. And, and as you celebrate, don't just be oblivious and dismiss the fact that tonight, too, there are others that are celebrating an entirely different thing. But in that, know this. As Psalms 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's, that word stronghold is a funny word. You know what else we use that word for? In ministry circles. We use that word for people that are possessed. When you deal with someone that's possessed, the demon that is possessing them, we call that a stronghold meaning that they have ownership of that area of your life. Now, in that light, let's read this verse again. The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. The question for us tonight is, regardless of how we're celebrating, regardless of Halloween, where are you tonight spiritually? Is the Lord the stronghold of your life? Does he possess you? Does he have such a hold on you that he controls you even more than you controlling yourself? Does he have free reign to make you do the things he wants you to do more than you do of yourself? When we get to that place where we have died to ourselves, where we have asked him to be Lord of our life, and we have basically given him permission to come and be the stronghold of my life, be the thing that holds me, that never is shaken, 
that no matter what I do, no matter when I stumble in sin, I can never live in that sin for very long without realizing that, that without just being miserable because there's something inside me that is constantly pulling me back to the Lord and it is just the fact that he is the stronghold of my life. That everything else I do, everything else in my life is contingent on whether it is okay with him. He drives me, his, my passions are his passions and so on and so forth. Well, when that's the case, then we don't have anything to fear. When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Now, for most of us in our context, you know, in, in innocent little Carrollton, Texas, those verses are like, wow, yeah. So when kids make fun of me, they will stumble and fall. Well, maybe so. But let's think about it in the context that is ours, too, of a couple of people this morning who came to the altar, who are going to Pakistan this week. By the way, her father was murdered, stabbed to death for preaching the gospel. The reason they live in the States was because they had to flee their country of origin because they, their family was on a hit list for believing in Jesus Christ. Her father was murdered, stabbed countless number of times because he had talked about Jesus out loud. This woman and now her son are fixing to go back to Pakistan for what? To give money to the flood victims. Who in the right mind does that? There's a psychological term called fight or flight that we all have. Means in the face of danger, we do one of two things. We either run away or we fight against whatever is to bring us harm. She and her son are going against their natural human instinct to fight or flight. They ran away once. They're not going back to fight their, their persecutors. They're going back to share the Lord with the last, the least, and the lonely. They're considering flood victims in their home country more importantly and above their own well-being. Or as Philippians says, they're doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, they're considering others better than themselves. Each of them are not only looking to their own interests, they're also looking to the interests of others, just as Christ Jesus did for us. There's a couple of people who the stronghold of their life is the Lord. And so even though they know that they are on a hit list, they know that going back could cost them their life realistically. Even though that they know going back into that country, they might not be released to come back over here. Even though they know this, they, there's something inside of them that compels them above their normal human instinct of fight or flight. It compels them to do their father's bidding because he is the stronghold of their life. And even though natural instinct says don't go back, their stronghold of their life compels them to go back. And so when they read these verses and they say, when evil men advance against you to devour your flesh, when the enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. That's why they ask us to pray for them this morning. Because they understand the power of prayer like you and I don't.
as we go out in our costumes and ask for candy tonight, they go back and face death in the face for their king. And you and I sit next to him in this room every Sunday morning, and we sing, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. But get done at six so that we can go trick-or-treating while they're saying, pray for me because I'm going to face death in the face. Y'all want to come with us? <laughs> Needless to say, no one's going. This time. Could it be that God is calling us as a church? Could that be the next long-term goal? That this church be willing to sacrifice our life for the cause of our king? That we would be willing to put our life on the line for the mission of Jesus Christ? Or do we preach missions when it's fun and we go on all these luxurious different countries and come home and have great stories? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle. And set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will sac sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call the Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in the, paths, in the straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes or false witnesses. Four false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Tonight, is, it, there's just no better night than to do a talk like this, than to talk about where we are with the Lord. As we finish talking about revival, as, as we go about celebrating whatever you're going to celebrate tonight, as the rest of the world and even those who, who are enemies of ours spiritually are celebrating, are at the height of their celebration against Jesus Christ tonight. What better day, what better time do we have to take pause and question who is the stronghold of our life? Are you the stronghold of your life? Do you make all the decisions? Do you tell the Lord when he can tell you what to do and when he can't? Is that sin a stronghold of your life? That one that you just cannot kick or beat? Are you playing games? Are you dressing up and trick-or-treating with Jesus Christ? Is it just all fun and pretty 
when the going is good? Or is Christ the stronghold of our lives? Does he have ownership? Does he have more rights to us than we do ourselves? Have we given him permission to beckon us to do his bidding regardless of how it makes us feel? Are we content to be in a place in the dwelling of the Lord regardless of where we are in the living? Are we content to be in the presence of the Lord spiritually so that even with him we can sacrifice physically with shouts of joy? Is our desire here on earth to see others know him in the land of the living? That's what David's talking about. David's talking about how he finds his joy, his solace, his, his belonging, his desire is to be walking in relationship with the Lord, regardless of what's going on physically. And then he ends that chapter going back to the land of the living, going back thinking, not talking spiritually, but talking physically. He says, in the land of the living, I will see you exalted in the land of the living. Are we walking in a relationship with the Lord where our relationship with Him is more important than anything else? And the only thing that we really desire in the land of the living, the only thing that is a stronghold that controls us rather than us, or better yet, the Lord controlling it, the only thing that drives us here is seeing His name and His renown in the lives of those around us here. Because He has my heart. I'm in a relationship with Him. My home is with Him whether that's here, Pakistan, or one day in heaven. I'm already there. I'm already in communion with him. So whether I live in Anna or in Carrollton, it doesn't matter, right? That's where we need to be. So tonight as you trick or treat, tonight as you dress up, tonight as you get your candy, just take pause and think about that. Are you storing up your treasure in heaven with Christ? Or are we just consuming ourselves? Are we wrapped up in consumerism, in celebration of who we are? Yesterday was a great day for me. Started off the day with a bunch of people in the church that are considering going on a mission trip, watching the Aggies kick Tech butt, six rows up from the field, then going with my brother-in-law and father-in-law and watching the Rangers win, and watching Baylor beat UT. It was a great day. <laughs> but all that stuff is fleeting. Because we get to come home and watch the Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> no. That stuff is fleeting. That stuff is there to enjoy, but that stuff is not the stronghold of our lives. Trick-or-treating is games for children, and that stuff is games for life. Boyfriends, girlfriends, the car you're going to drive, the job you have, the amount of money you make, that stuff is child's play compared to the awesome splendor of knowing Christ because my relationship with God lasts. It stays the same. It only gets better. Regardless of the physical circumstances and how they change around me, my relationship with the Lord is eternal. And the only thing that I can take with me from this physical life are the souls that have been impacted by Christ through me. That's what I can take with me. 
when I stand there in the kingdom of heaven on that day and I turn around and I see all the souls that are there in part because Christ moved through me, that is something I can take with me. It's the only thing I can take with me. That's what we need to be investing in. So tonight, have fun. But tonight is tonight. Don't let tonight be more than it is. In the same way with your dating relationships, your jobs, your, your ambitions, your dreams. That's all they are. But this, this relationship here, this is eternal. So invest your stock in that. Lord, may you be the stronghold of our lives. As we go about and we, we seek thrills and pleasures and fun, tonight we, we, may we pause and be reminded that you are God that you died for us, that you are eternal, that we have a relationship and an eternity awaiting us with you that begins our, began the moment we received you as our Lord and Savior. May we invest in that, Father. May we know who you are. May we dwell in your tabernacle in a walking, living, vibrant relationship with you so that when the enemies come against us, they will stumble and fall. So that when we have to sacrifice in this life, physically, emotionally, spiritually, as we sacrifice, we can do it with shouts of joy because we know that those things are just merely fleeting things, that we are investing in things that are more important, eternal. I pray this for us. I pray this for this church. Lord, we thank you for saving comfort in Africa and, and the man that was driving her ransom. We pray that they would heal quickly from the torture that they endured as they are in a hospital over there. We pray for Sam and Bakish as they travel to Pakistan. We pray your protection over them. We pray that you would surround them with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would send hosts of heavenly angels to go before them and be with them. We pray that you would blind the oppressors, that the enemy would not even see them, that they'd be blinded to, to who they are and what they're doing there and, and, and the gospel that they are bringing that the enemy would not be able to touch them, that they would come back having, having shared your gospel with many, many people that have never heard your word before. Lord, you can take them places that us as American missionaries could never go in that country. So we pray your blessing, your provision, and your protection over them, that we might celebrate with them when they return, just as the way that we're celebrating with comfort in Africa as she heals from her ordeal. Lord, bring us to a place where we are walking with you, where we are more passionate about being in a relationship with you and worshiping you than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, let us be trick-or-treaters of Jesus. Let us seek to receive blessings from you more than what this world has to offer. In Jesus' holy and precious name I pray, amen. Thank you all for coming.